we're still using these differences to hate each other. And until we stop just using, you know, again, skin color, race, creed, sexual orientation, religion, you know, differences to like, I'm better than you, my philosophy, my nation, my, you know, whatever we're using, man, all the, all the freaking policies in the world aren't going to do a damn bit of good, in my opinion. They're not going to do it. It's just, it's just shuffling around the pieces on the chessboard when the chessboard itself needs to be re revised, like our way of treating one another on a basic level of humanity. Like that's the psychological crack in our society as human beings. And if we don't address that, man, I don't give a damn how many environmental policies you enact. We're going to keep destroying this planet and destroying each other. Welcome to the Vegan Manly Man podcast. Guys, welcome back to yet another episode of the Vegan Manly Man podcast. I'm your host, Jake Singer, and this is the show where we talk about self-growth, plant-based living, and sharing the message of love, compassion, and peace for all beings, and we are certainly going to talk about all those things today. You guys are in for a good one. Guys, I have an incredible guest on the show, and let's just say things got deep real quick, but that's the way we do it here on the podcast. So, Jason Robel is the best-selling author of the Hay House Cookbook and Lifestyle Guide, Eternity. You may also recognize him from TV as the first plant-based chef with a primetime television series, How to Live to 100, which taught millions of viewers on the cooking channel how to prepare delicious, organic, and healthy meals at home. He's been a dedicated practitioner of yoga, Pilates, weight training, and meditation for over a decade, and he infuses his events, videos, and teachings with the importance of mindfulness, spirituality, and fitness as the cornerstones of a balanced existence. With more than 20 years of experience in holistic plant-based nutrition and gourmet cooking techniques, his offerings are fueled by his passionate, lighthearted, and fun vibes. Oh, and did I mention he can sing and do stand-up comedy? And he was on the Steve Harvey show looking for love. And he was a chef for some amazing celebrities. And he's a graduate of the Living Light Culinary Institute. Seriously, this list just keeps going on. So I'm going to leave it to the man himself to share his story and incredible wisdom. I hope you guys enjoy the show and I will see you on the other side. Jason Robel, welcome to the show. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on here, man. I've been I've been following you for many years, so it's uh, definitely humble to have you here. Oh, I'm I'm excited to be here and, and dive in with you. I'm so glad that uh, that our mutual friend uh, uh, Fraser connected us. Yeah, man, he is like I feel like he's like a doorway to so many connections. It's amazing how many people I've met through him. Yeah, he's he's one of those guys, you know, that uh, he's just all heart, you know. And obviously, you know mm. his story and you know his background, but he's one of those guys that he he just he constantly is introducing me to new people. And I don't even have to ask him. He's just one of those good people to have in your life that is just, yeah, he's just a doorway to so many great connections. Yeah, definitely. And it's funny too, like I had known about you, but as I started kind of diving deeper into what you've done and kind of your personality, we're actually very similar in a lot of ways. And I feel like our, our minds are on very similar places. So I'm like, this is going to be a really cool episode. Oh, awesome. I'm ready to dig in, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I actually spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to pronounce your last name. Before, before doing this show and i was just like what is it and i'm kind of actually sad that it's not robble because i was like man you could have your own dance then instead of do the wobble you could do the robble do the robble <laughs> that's good like, no one's ever said that before <laughs> yeah like like what would that look like for you so like i'm just picturing you like you know like taking your arm and like pretending like you're locking in like a bullet and then like twisting it like <laughs> 
that's pretty good. That's you know, it's it's interesting you bring up the last name right because uh, the W is actually silent, and for whatever reason, that silent W at the beginning of the name it throws it throws so many people off. So you know, I kind of just try and remind people like just just ignore the W. It's there, but just try and act like it's not there. Yeah. <laughs> Nice. No, actually, I found it out because I went on um, like one of your story highlights and I saw you, you just print out, you said it, you're like the, the, the robo house. And I was just like, Oh, thank God. I was just like, I didn't want to ask you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad you got that mystery figured out, man. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. (laughs) Well, man, I must say you seemingly done it all. You've had your own TV show. You're a singer songwriter, a coach, an author, a speaker, a celebrity chef, a wellness expert, and, and even a stand up comedian you know, how have you done so many things? That's a fantastic question. And, and it's so funny. Cause when you, when you read all those titles off, I'm like, God, that sounds so exhausting. <laughs> it sounds so, good God. Yeah. Um, I, ever since a, I was a little boy, I've had an aspect of my personality that for better or for worse, especially now in my adult life, I, I just can't sit still and boredom is like my kryptonite. So Mm. I feel like if I'm not being creatively engaged, passionately creatively engaged with something or a few things, um, I feel bored. I, I, I feel like I'm not giving my gift to life as powerfully as I can. And, and I say it's Mm. a blessing and a curse because you know, I have definitely succumbed to overwhelm and overwork and burnout as a result of that uh, personality trait and that inclination. But acknowledging that it's been there ever since I was a little kid, it's it's probably not going away anytime soon. And, um, yeah. you know, it, it, the biggest challenge I have, Jake, is prioritization. You know, it's like with so yeah. many things I'm passionate about is, is not really finding the time. I, I really feel like you can find the time in each day to fit everything in if you're creative and you block your time well. It's just prioritizing things, man. So, so many creative endeavors. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, priority is, is that's the ever, that's the ever present challenge, right? Is, is what's at the top of the heap to deal with. So I I think if, if that's my biggest challenge, you know, fitting everything in and it's just, it's a, I don't know, it's a constant dance of life, right? Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. I, no, I get it, man. Cause I'm, I'm somebody who loves it. I just, I want to try everything. There's so much to see. There's so much to do. There's so much to experience. You know, the problem is, you know, you dip your toes in everything, but you know, where, where do you actually jump in full force, you know, off the deep end? Yeah. That, that's the thing. Cause that's where you, I feel like that's where you tend to find success is when you really go, you know, head on into something rather than just dipping your toes into so many things and just doing everything kind of mediocre, but doing one thing really well. That's true. Yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting when I focused full force on my, on my culinary career, you know, with the, the TV series and the YouTube channel and the cookbook, I saw a ton of momentum and a ton of growth there. Um, however, it was at the sacrifice of some of my other creative passions, like my music and my comedy and, and my acting and things like that. So I'm reintegrating those aspects of my life now, you know, back into the mix. And, it, and although I'm not as, you know, full hardcore in my culinary career as I was a few years ago, I feel yeah. better giving energy to the other creative passions and, and mm. not kind of treating them like um, like the redheaded stepchild, if you will. <laughs> you know, like, you be in the corner, and I'll, yeah. I'll get back to you in five years, you know? <laughs> um, five years goes by really quick, and, and yeah. noticing that I had kind of left some of my other creative pursuits to kind of dry up a little bit, um, that didn't feel right to do anymore. So, 
trying to find the balance right now. That's my biggest thing, man. Yeah. I watched your, your stand up on YouTube. Uh, uh, it was pretty funny, man. I definitely enjoyed it. Oh, thanks. I, I, I know half of it was like cat jokes, but Hey, no, nah, I get it, man. <laughs> I have a cat. And like, even today I was looking at her and she's literally sitting on top of like this end table I have and just staring at the wall. I'm like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> They're enigmas. That's why I like them. Like I have a, I have a dog, obviously Bella, the French bulldog. And, uh, oh, yeah, she, she's, she's easier to figure out than the cats, you know, like, like I, I, I get her. It's like, okay, cool. Like I, I get your dog ways. The cats, man, cats are like, I get why the ancient Egyptians worship them. I get yeah. that. I get it. Cause they're, they're, they're like these sexy, weird, sensual creatures that you just, it, I still don't understand them. I've had cats my literally my entire life, you know, like it, 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 growing up, having them as an adult. And like, they're just, they're a mystery, man. They're aliens they're that built the pyramids. That's why the Egyptians <laughs> worship them. <laughs> what this whole time. And that's why the cats act the way they do. They're like, yeah, you're going to worship me. Yeah. Cause I basically <laughs> built ancient Egypt. So. Plot twist. <laughs> oh man. So what, what has been the most uh, fulfilling pursuit that you've done? That's a great question. Mm. I mean, it's, it's interesting. If I think, I think about like certain moments of my life that were like these, the, the, these peak moments, you know, the, these moments that like of accomplishment or, or creativity or success in my career that I could see as like, like, you know, reaching a certain peak, if you will. But those moments are pretty fleeting, you know? Um, so I could name one or, or several of those moments, but in terms of most fulfilling, you know what I think it is? I, I think it's merging my ethics and my philosophy of being with my career. Mm. And no matter what I do, whether it's the food or the music or, or the coaching, performing, whatever it is, I, I'm, I'm always doing my best to infuse a sense of purpose and ethics in everything I do. You know, whether whether it's just making people laugh or it's trying to give them information that's going to help them be healthier and live longer, you know, and be more ethical. Yeah. I think it's just trying to merge my values and my ethics with my mission and my passions. Yeah. You know, that That's the most fulfilling thing because I think creating in a vacuum is not as fulfilling as if I know there's a higher purpose, right? If I'm just making recipes to make recipes, you know, as, as a regular chef, there's not much purpose in it behind just pure creativity. And that's enough in itself, but Man, to, to know that like if I can somehow inspire people to eat better, live healthier, and have a gentler footprint on this earth, then there's a mission and there's a purpose behind it. And that feels much more fulfilling. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Man. I think like the, the creativity is is the fire and then the, the purpose and the, the reason behind it is kind of like the, the big old logs that you throw on the campfire that burn until the next morning, you know? That's so. a great analogy. That's a great analogy. Yeah. You know, from your website under your headline, Why Am I Here? You write to co-create a community of conscious, effective global citizens who embody positive communication, intentional self-actualization, creative contribution, and the practice of presence. Would you consider this to be, you know, like your mission statement for life? Yeah, 100%. And, and to distill that even further, you know, when people ask me, like, well, what's your why? Like, why are you doing what you're doing? an even more succinct version of that I think is um, I want to perpetuate joy and contentment and reduce suffering. Yeah. That's really it is I want to 
spread and perpetuate joy and contentment and reduce suffering. And, you know, the, the, the big part of that is suffering comes in so many forms and as human beings, and certainly if we are, are present to our connection to nature and animals, you know, there's an seemingly soul crushing, insurmountable amount of suffering on this planet. You know, there are days, man, where I feel crushed under the weight of the suffering I perceive in this world, you know, and I think part of that is just being empathic. Part of that is just being an extremely sensitive person. Um, but if I don't somehow try to alleviate that suffering in this world, I know it's not my job, you know what I mean? It's not my job to reduce the suffering on this planet, right? but I can't stand by knowing there's so much unnecessary suffering. Yeah. Um, if I can alleviate that somehow, man, I, I feel like that is my purpose on this planet while I'm here. I, I can agree with that 100%. What do you think about, you know, do you think that, that globally we can reduce suffering as time goes on? Or do you think there's always going to be that yin and yang, that black and white of, you know, good and evil in the world? I think that there's a certain amount of suffering and pain that needs to happen in our lives for growth. I, I don't believe in, you know, I don't believe in our human experience. We're going to eliminate suffering. Um, that's why I don't use that word. I say reduce because I feel like there's an incredible amount of unnecessary suffering, self-perpetuated suffering, you know, from the food that we put in our body that's killing us to the unhealthy way that we engage in our relationships to the combative way we approach people who think differently than us or Mm. worship differently than us or, or um, choose different things in our life. You know, I think a lot of the, the strife that we face on this planet is, is perpetuated out of fear. You know, it's, you worship differently than me. You live differently than me. You eat differently. You, you have a different sexual orientation. You're a different race. You're a different gender. You know, we, we use our perceived differences as ammunition to destroy one another. When I think if we get down to it, the human experience or the experience of just being a sentient being, I'll just expand it. You know, what, what do sentient creatures want? They want to thrive. They want to live. They want to take care of their young and their families. They want to live without unnecessary cruelty or suffering. I mean, I, I could say that about humanity, but I'll say that for any you know, sentient creature who wants to thrive and and procreate on this planet. You know, it's, I feel like everybody wants the same basic things. We're just focusing so much on our differences yeah, and using that as a reason to kill each other, wage war, destroy one another. And, you know, I was watching the, I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent, man, but you know, I was watching the, the, the the, the democratic debates last night, you know, Mm. with all the candidates. Yeah. And talking, you know, I'm watching everybody talk about, you know, taxes and healthcare and prescriptions and war and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, all your policies aren't going to do a damn bit of good if we don't address our psychological, spiritual mm. rift at the, at, at, the, at the core of being, which is we're still using these differences to hate each other. And until we stop just using, you know, again, skin color, race, creed, sexual orientation, religion, you know, differences to like, I'm better than you, my philosophy, my nation, my, you know, whatever we're using, man, all the, all the freaking policies in the world aren't going to do a damn bit of good. I'm I'm so glad you said that, man. Seriously. They're not going to do it. It's just, it's just shuffling around the pieces on the chessboard when the chessboard itself needs to be re- revised, like our way of treating one another on a basic level of humanity, like that's the psychological crack in our society as human beings. Yeah. And 
If we don't address that, man, I don't give a damn how many environmental policies you enact. We're going to keep destroying this planet and destroying each other. I can't tell you how much I resonate with everything you just said. I've been saying this, and this is, this is one thing that I, I tend to teach or, or, or at least post about on social media it is the fact that, you know, I, I really don't focus on these single issue things that, that happen, like exactly like you said, whether, you know, it's this tax or this and that. And while, yes, there are things that I wish, you know, would go a certain way, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, passing laws that would help the environment. Of course, I want that. But like you said, it, it's still not going to fix the underlying problem. It's like treating a disease with, you know, a prescription medication. You're, you're just kind of getting rid of the side effects, but you're not actually treating the disease. And so I preach the same thing. It's like, we need to change who we are as individuals. And exactly like you said, how we treat each other, you know, not based on the color of our skin or our sexual orientation, but just as the commonness that we are as humans living on this earth. If we can learn to live together in a way that brings us together in, in that realm rather than our differences, like these things I 100% believe will naturally fix themselves. So all these single issue things that are happening, I think we will naturally come to the best conclusion if we just work on ourselves first yeah. as humans on this planet. Yeah, that's so well said. It's so well said. And, and you know, on, on this aspect of understanding each other and, and coming to some sort of equanimity and, and, and deep connection, you know, I, I think suffering and pain does have a purpose if we use that suffering and that pain to understand each other on a more deep level, right? And, and what I mean by that is like, you know, someone who's never struggled with money or who was born into money is never going to understand what it's like to struggle with money. Right. Um, someone who, you know, and, and, and you know, someone who perhaps ha- has certain, you know, societal advantages or, or for me, you know, part of my heritage is, is, you know, is being a white man. I'm not fully white. I'm actually mixed race, but you know, it's this thing about, you know, we talk about white privilege or, or, or what we're born into. But I think that if we experience suffering, loss, hardship, challenge, it allows us if we choose to view it as a way to connect to the hardships and the suffering and the challenges of what our, our other human brothers and sisters are experiencing. Yeah. And looking at those as ways to unite a common bond of, look, it's life is tough, man. It is, it is not ease and grace all the time. Mm, you know, one of the, not. one of the biggest things that, that I, it, the umbrage that I take with a lot of the spiritual or pseudo spiritual practices out there is just like, oh yeah, ease and grace, ease and grace, you know, manifest the life you want. I'm like, I, I believe in visualization. I believe in intention. I believe in all those things, but I also believe that life is tough. Yeah. And life will throw, especially I think as we grow and expand, even bigger challenges our way. Yeah. But it's the uniting of, again, I just think the human experience, the glory of it, the suffering of it, the pain of it, the joy of it, we have so much more in common than we do have our differences, man. And that's just what I always come back to Mm. is how, you know, especially when I'm challenged by someone uh, in a conversation who, you know, perhaps doesn't see my, my similar viewpoints on life is how can I come to a common ground with this human being? I don't need to be right. I don't need to beat them in a debate. How do I come to a common ground? Where's the common ground with this person? I'm always trying to just ask myself that. Yeah, kind of intercept with them where they're at on their journey. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people skip over that because it's easy Mm -hmm. to see everything as 
all my beliefs are right, but this is where you are at this point in time. You know, five years ago is probably different. And for so many people in the world, they're at different points as well. So it it does need to come to a place of, and I use the word compassion a lot because I feel like compassion is being able to understand and, and feel for somebody. And just because it might be something completely different or something you've not experienced, it's putting yourself in a place to try to understand what they're going through. And and once you can do that and just open yourself up to the idea that, hey, this person is suffering, maybe not in the same way that I did, but everyone knows what suffering feels like. It doesn't matter what it is. Everyone knows what pain is. Mm-hmm. So it's just yeah. connecting to that. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, sometimes it can descend into this um, uh, comparing our pain or it's almost like the pain Olympics. Like, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, well, yeah, but you haven't like, you know, and, I, and I'm not downplaying anybody's loss by any means, but it becomes like this comparison trap of I've suffered more than you have. And I'm like, that's not what it's about. Mm. That's not what it's about. It's not about like winning the suffering Olympics here. Like yeah. no one's getting a medal. Yeah. It's about like, I know loss, you know loss. I know pain, you know pain. I know poverty, you know poverty. Like getting yeah. past the skin color, the religion, the sexual orientation into the basics of the human experience. Like that's what I'm super interested in. Yeah, 100%, man. Yeah. Wow, we went deep pretty quick there, fast. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Off the bat. <laughs> yeah, no, nah, that's kind of the way that things go here. So uh, I'm all about it. So, you know, I would assume that that your mission statement, you know, reflecting back on that is not something you came to overnight. Talk a little bit more about your life growing up. Um, you know, the things you experienced that got you to where you are today, you know, maybe some of the critical moments and decisions that helped shape you along your journey. Mm, That's a deep question. Um, well, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, which, which definitely shaped my personality a lot, you know, growing up in a very blue collar industrial hardworking town where it was like, you know, the, the fam- my family mantra is basically like, we'll make it fit. Like we'll make it work. Like no matter what, make it work. Yeah. And it, it was just this work ethic and philosophy of like, yo, whatever life is going to like push your way, it's, it's figure outable. Like it might not happen overnight. It might not, you know, happen in a week. It might not happen in a month, but like, you have the means and the strength and the will to like do this. So growing up with that kind of family uh, ethic, that work ethic was, was fantastic, you know, especially like coming out to California years ago and you know, the culture here is pretty laid back. And I was like, Oh, I can use this workout work ethic to my advantage. Um, and growing up in Detroit too, you know, it was, I, I was raised by a single mom. Um, my dad wasn't necessarily interested in, in being around, uh, for my childhood and, and that kind of upbringing. So, you know, being raised by a really strong, hardworking single mom was, was wonderful. And also not having a a foundational masculine figure in my life, you know, growing up and especially in my twenties and thirties and still am, you know, figuring out what masculinity means to me, Mm. you know, what does it mean for me to show up as a man? What are those traits? What are those attributes? How do I define that for myself? and break away from society's archetype of this is what it means to be a man, you know? So, so growing up without a dad present, there's a lot of trial and error, man, of, of, you know, really figuring out my masculinity and and what that meant to me and how that shows up in the world. Um, but you know, one thing that was always encouraged in my life growing up was, was creativity and experimentation and, you know, kindness to animals. Uh, I wasn't raised vegetarian or vegan. Um, the first three years of my life, I was, by default vegan because I couldn't have dairy products and, uh, 
and my mom was just you know feeding me fruits and vegetables. Um, but I came back to veganism at uh, age 18 when my grandfather was passing away from cancer. And my grandfather dying of cancer was this catalyst, I didn't know it at the time, to me taking greater responsibility for my health, for my choices, for my, my you know, ethical position in the world. And three years after he passed away, um, I gradually was moving toward a plant-based lifestyle. And then the summer of 1998, I remember standing in my mom's kitchen and being like, hey, mom, I, got, I have something to tell you. And I think she had this like idea that I was going to come out to her. Like, I'm yeah. like, no, no, I'm not gay. I'm not gay. She's <laughs> like, oh, okay. I was like, I'm vegan. She's like, oh, you're vegan. I was like, it sounded so weird to say it because in the mid-90s in Detroit, being vegan, the reaction from some people was like, is that like a cult? Is it like, yeah. or is it some kind of alien weird space cult? Like, what, what, is, <laughs> what is vegan? Um, but that was the thing that kind of set me off on this journey, man, of, of taking responsibility for my health and trying to rewrite my family's health history. Um, what was like the, the defining moment when you were like, okay, this is it. I'm going to go vegan. Like, like what was running through your head? It was such a gradual process. Honestly, it was, it was from the summer of 95 when my grandfather died of cancer to the summer of 98. Uh, and it, it was such a gradual unfolding because I was realizing how poorly I was eating, how, how bad I was treating my body. I was, I was pretty much, you know, eating what a standard 18 year old American man eats, you know, giant pizzas, burgers, hot wings, beer, what just, you know, eating like crap. And, um, and what started off as for health reasons of like, Hey, I I don't want to end up with cancer like my grandfather and diabetes and some of the other issues in my family. Um, it was this interesting congruence of things that were happening. It was me, you know, going on in the early days of the internet, researching holistic health and reading a bunch of books and reading about mad cow disease. But I took a philosophy and ethics class in college and realized that my whole life I was saying, I'm an animal lover. I'm an animal lover. You know, I love dogs. I love cats. I love hamsters. I love whatever. But I'm saying I love this one group of animals and I'm supporting the destruction, the genocide of this entire group of other animals. So when I say I'm an animal lover, I realized I was being completely out of integrity with myself and inconsistent with what I was saying I was. So once the ethics and the philosophy came in, along with the health reasons, I just started dropping one meat at a time, man. I was like, all right, I'm going to take out beef. I felt better. I'm going to take out turkey and chicken. Whoa, crap, I feel even better. Eating more organic fruits and vegetables. And the last thing to go was fish. And then once I did that, I mean, I couldn't deny how great I felt. I great felt I, I felt great spiritually. I felt great ethically. I felt great physically. And that's why, like, when I finally said to my mom in the summer of '98, like, I, I'm I'm vegan now. Like, I even said it with a weird, like, hesitance because the goal, you know, my goal wasn't to become vegan. It just ended up that, like, whoa, I, I'm not eating any animal products, and yeah. I feel amazing. Oh crap, I'm vegan now. So it just kind of happened, man. It was just a journey of experimentation. It was a journey of seeing how I felt, and uh, and twenty one years later, I just I haven't looked back. Wow, yeah, I really respect the fact that you came to that conclusion on your own because I would imagine, you know, in nineteen ninety five, the early, very early days of the internet, there wasn't a lot of stuff out there as far as information goes, um, and yeah. especially probably not like you know, undercover videos of like slaughterhouses, because that's what it took for me was I I initially got interested in veganism for health reasons, but it took watching earthlings, which is just all undercover, you know, um, slaughterhouse footage to really hit me and just like 
all of a sudden melt like all those walls that I had built up. So I respect so much people that just come to that conclusion that are just like, I'm an animal lover, but here I am eating them as well. Because for a lot of people, it takes something very drastic and it takes almost that shock factor to kind of like wake them up. Yeah. I mean, for me, honestly, man, I remember having a moment in, in, in my college classroom, in my ethics class. And I was talking about, I can't remember exactly. I was debating with a, with a classmate about, about consistency and ethics and philosophy. And I said something about being an animal lover and they're like, do you eat animals? And I was like, well, I mean, at that time I was only eating, I think fish and chicken. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I eat like fish and chicken. They're like, well, those are animals, aren't they? And I was like, oh, and then it hit me. (laughs) I'm a hypocrite. Like I remember having that thought about myself and not, and not doing it to beat myself up necessarily. Right. But it was this connection cerebrally where I was like, wow, I'm walking around saying I'm an animal lover and I'm consuming the dead bodies and condoning the, the slaughter of billions of these creatures. So for me to say I'm an animal lover, I could say I'm a cat lover. I could say I'm a dog lover, mm. but it was the hypo- it was becoming aware of my own hypocrisy and the own, you know, my own, my own BS, right? That yeah. was really the moment where I was like, I cannot be out of integrity with myself. I cannot be out of integrity with who I say I am and I need to be congruent. Like that was really the moment where I was like, okay, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I can't do this. I can't, I can't eat animals anymore. Like I just can't, I have to be true to myself. That's really the core. I have to be true to myself. Mm. So you go vegan. Is that what eventually, um, leads you on the path to becoming a chef? Yeah. I mean, well, it's kind of out of necessity. There were two stages to this, you know, when, when I finally made that commitment to just be vegan, you know, one of the first things my mom said to me was, uh, you know, I, this is, I fully support this. She actually ended up being vegan three months later, which was amazing. Um, oh, wow. She said, I just want to make sure you're going to do this in a healthy and balanced way. And, and to her point, you know, in the mid nineties, mid to late nineties, there was not a lot of research studies like there are now there's, you know, hundreds of studies around vegan diets and plant-based eating and the efficacy of that to promote human health. Back then it was like, I mean, who was around then? Dr. Neil Bernard. Yeah. Um, All the OGs. Uh, the OG, I mean, uh, <laughs> who was, I, I can't think of him, of him right now. He's uh, up in Colin San Francisco. Campbell. Colin Campbell wasn't even known back then. Really? And this was in the 90s. No, this was um, Dean Ornish. Basically, the only two vegan doctors Ornish, I knew at that time were Dean Ornish and, and Neil Bernard. And they didn't, to my knowledge, other than Dean Ornish with his reversing heart study, reversing heart disease study, there was not a lot of clinical research available. And so she's just like, look, I just want you to research this and like be healthy about it. Yeah. So learning how to make food was a necessity for me to be healthy as a vegan, right? It wasn't, it wasn't like I'm going to pursue this as a career. I remember, you know, when I first started learning how to cook, it was like, you need to do this just to learn how to feed yourself, man. Yeah. Um, and when I moved out to California in 2005, you know, I was, I had been singing in bands for years. I'd been doing acting and voiceover. So I came out to California to honestly, you know, continue my career and, and, you know, break into the music and acting scenes out here in, in Los Angeles. Um, and I had a bunch of money saved and I wasn't making any money as a musician or an actor and watching, <laughs> watching that bank account get drained real quick out in yeah. LA. And I was like, well, okay, I need to make money. Clearly I, I got to do something. Um, what's something I can monetize creatively that I'm good at? And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a pretty decent cook, but what if I like, what if I became a chef? 
what if I became a vegan chef? So I actually ended up just on a whim going to a vegan culinary school and, uh, and jumped into a culinary career. And, um, and you know, that was 2005, late Oh five was, was kind of that first foray into like, Oh yeah, I'm a vegan chef now. This is interesting. That was so 2005, it was a completely vegan culinary school. Yeah, it's called it's still around. It's called the uh, Living Light Culinary Institute. It's uh, it's up in Fort Bragg, California, which is like two to three hours north of San Francisco on the coast. Just gorgeous. It's in Mendocino County. Um, and I knew, you know, for me, as long as I could get the basics of food prep, knife skills, recipe creation, I didn't need to go to like CIA or Le Cordon Bleu because I knew what look. You know, I'm not going to be making pork chops. I'm not going not to be making lamb shanks or veal or anything like that. So at that time, Living Light was only one of three three plant-based culinary schools in the world. Yeah, so I was going to say it couldn't have been that popular in 2005. I mean, that, that's still kind of early in the game for, for the plant-based uh, movement. For sure. So it was like, okay, do you want to uh, – there was one at Bowman College – there was one in London that a bunny of mine graduated from, and then there was Living Light. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to pick that one. Uh, <laughs> and so it was great, man. I came out on the other side just like raring to go, and I jumped into the culinary industry, um, spent a few years working in restaurants and cafes in New York and, and the Bay Area and L.A., uh, and then gradually transitioned into um, starting a catering business uh, and then doing some celebrity personal chefing, which was a fascinating world to be in. Hmm. Um, but then how did right you get on, into that? Like, can you list any names or? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, it's, it's a word of mouth thing. It's, it, it's, it's interesting, you know, that whole, that whole celebrity world when you're, when you're working with celebrities there, there's basically two entry points. There's one, which is there are placement agencies, you know, there are, um, like staffing agencies that will place chefs and caretakers and nannies and, people like that with high profile clients. That's one way to do it. The other one is word of mouth. Um, so I actually started lecturing in like 2009 at this thing called the longevity now conference. And I was doing food demos and, and doing a little bit of stand up and, and, you know, vegan food demos. And, uh, and one of the organizers was like, Hey, uh, you know, we've got some, got some people who are in need of some vegan chefs. Are you, are you down with that? I was like, yeah. So my first celebrity client was Jeremy Piven when he was doing entourage Hmm. Um, and that led into, I did two movies with Woody Harrelson. Nice. Uh, I made food for Russell Simmons, Sigourney Weaver, Robin Wright. Uh, I made ice cream for Steve Buscemi, John C. Wow. Riley, Flea. Uh, I fed a lot of people and got around the block, man. Yeah. And, and you know what? I was blessed, man, because, um, you sometimes hear horror stories about, uh, people who've worked with celebrities but everybody I've worked with was so kind and so respectful and so generous. And I, I have nothing but amazing things to say about every single person I've had wow. the opportunity to feed. Like I, I just have had great people. It's that vegan um, mindset. Yeah. Just like, and just really <laughs> sweet and just really sweet people, man. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those things too, where, you know, in the tabloids and, and TMZ and everything on the internet, you know, they're always trying to talk trash about people. Cause you know, clickbait, that's what gets headlines. Right. But the reality is, a lot of these people that are whatever quote nightmares or whatever, like I've worked with these people and, and, and again, they were great humans, great, great people. So, you yeah. know, don't believe everything you read in the news about anything, but especially about celebrities. 
<laughs> yeah, no, I just I very much think like, hey man, these celebrities they're they're people just like us. You know, they happen to be in a position of notoriety obviously but at the end of the day when they go home and they're 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 just like us i feel like you know that they're, they're just 100%. human beings trying to figure it out just like we are yeah and and working in their homes and you know in some cases meeting their families or their significant others you know they want to be healthy they want to be happy they want to be loved they they want to be respected for their art um you know i didn't work with any prima donnas you know or, or people that were like really braggadocious you know i i just um, as a, as a mentor of mine once said, he's like, they're just working actors, mm-hmm. like not to diminish what they've done, but don't like, don't like feed into the whole, like, Oh my God. It's like, they, they just happen to be like working actors or working yeah. musicians. You yeah. know, it's, they caught a break and they've had a great career. Like don't trip, don't trip yeah. about it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was, that was a thing that eventually, man, like this was around 2010. Uh, and then I was like, what's this social media thing? What's YouTube? What's Instagram? <laughs> what is all this? Um, and like late 2010 was when I first like jumped, like hardcore jumped into social media. And that's kind of when a lot of things changed for me. In what way? Well, it was, it was an opportunity to really combine my on camera experience and my wacky personality and the acting with the food and nutrition and inspiration. Because mm. until that point, being in a cafe or a restaurant kitchen, you're back of the house, right? Your guests aren't seeing you. Right. I'm not getting to present or interact with with the patrons of the restaurant. Same thing with catering. You know, you're just you're doing the catering business. You're doing weddings and music festivals and things like that. You're still back of the house. You're still in the background. And same thing with celebrity personal chefing. You know, it was it was it was one of these moments. A, a dear friend of mine at the time, they said, you know, in L.A., if you're in the entertainment world, there's kind of two buckets there's the stars and the people who serve the stars. And I was like, Oh, well, I actually kind of feel like in my heart, I feel like there's some, there's some stuff I want to be doing, but I'm like too busy serving the stars to let my own star shine, you know? And it was that moment of like, yo, you could like really easily get locked into this, like being a celebrity personal chef and making really good money, but never doing what is in your heart to do. Mm. Right. Cause it's like the golden handcuffs. Like, wow, that's a great paycheck. And yeah. they're never actually doing. And I have friends, I have great, amazing friends here in LA that are immensely talented as artists, but that paycheck is so good. They're just like, I was making a ton of money and they're never really working on their cookbooks or working on their YouTube channel or doing their art. And it's like, I get it. Like I get it, but I had to make a decision at a certain point where it was like, do I stay with these golden handcuffs or do I take a risk and start this YouTube channel and start, you know, touring and doing live speaking appearances and, you know, um, having this vision for a TV series. Like I, you know, do I really, really take that leap of faith? And I had to make that decision, man, because it's, it's, again, it's so easy just to get locked in like, serving the stars and getting paid really well for it. But I knew that wasn't my highest calling. That wasn't yeah. my highest, my highest joy. Yeah. There's that one quote, I'll probably butcher it, but it's just like, you know, focus on making your own dreams come true or otherwise you'll make somebody else's, you know, for sure, more or less. So yeah, I agree. I tr- Trust me, man. Like it, it, if I was doing a job like that and getting a really nice paycheck, it would be so tempting to just want to kind of be like, Oh, this is cool. And then, and just, be comfortable but you know i've 
definitely learned in life that staying in a comfortable position is rarely fulfilling, you know, maybe short term, short term, but definitely not long term. So, yeah, it's kind of one of those things like the analogy I I think of is, um, is like laying in a hammock beachside with a coconut in your hand. Yeah. And it's, it's those moments are wonderful. Those moments of comfort are wonderful because they're fleeting. Mm. You know what I want to live my entire life in a hammock beachside with a coconut. (laughs) I mean, and and when I say that, there's probably like certain listeners that are like, "Of course, if you had that, why wouldn't you? Are you insane?" (laughs) It's like no, because there'd be a part of my soul at a certain point that would be like, "Dude, you need to get up and create something. You need to get up and like talk to the people and 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 give them some love and inspire them." And and you know, so I think I think to your point, moments of comfort moments of reward moments of really savoring what we've accomplished are important but we can't stay there forever Mm. i really like that we can't stay there forever yeah yeah i definitely agree so you're the first plant-based chef with a primetime television series um the show is called how to live to 100 how the heck did that come to be i mean obviously i can kind of see the transition with what you just said you know you're now you got the social media going, you're working with celebrities. So I'm sure you had some connections, but how did that fully come to fruition? Yeah, it was pretty, pretty magical, man. Um, for years I had been putting on my vision board that I wanted to, you know, be the first vegan chef with a primetime TV show, not the first vegan chef with a show in history. Cause there were several, uh, a couple of people actually who had PBS shows before me. Right. So it wasn't like the first vegan chef in TV history, but it was like, yo, PBS is cool and everything, but I want like a prime time network, you yeah. know? So I was very specific about that. And it seemed like the craziest thing I could ask for. It did. I mean, it was like, okay, you want, you want, like, dream the biggest dream you could possibly think of back then. It was like, I want to have my own TV series. And I remember when I started telling people, it's one of those things, man, where you got to be very careful who you share your dreams with. You do. You have to be very careful because I remember talking to people in my, in my circle, not my super close friends, but just people in my extended circle. And they're like, Oh yeah, well, you know, we tried that. We've had pitch meetings with food network and we've had, you know, pitch meetings with blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and yeah, they just same thing. You know, uh, I'm not doing veganism. We're not doing a vegan. I was like, cool. Uh, I'm going to keep the dream. Thanks for your input. Yeah. And what happened was I met a TV producer and director as a result of one of the speaking appearances I was doing. And uh, she still is with this company called Crazy Legs Productions. Uh, They're based out of New York City, uh, LA, and Atlanta. And they're like, hey, we've been wanting to pitch a a vegetarian, plant-based food concept. And there's actually, we have a client, Animal Planet, who's interested. I was like, Animal Planet? Like, how does that make any sense? They said, well, they want us to conceive of a show that doesn't use animals in the food. I was like, oh, that's an interesting pivot for Animal yeah. Planet. Okay. So we actually conceived a, a show concept and we pitched it to Animal Planet in, oh, this was January of 2012. Animal Planet actually passed because they said I didn't look like a Midwestern lumberjack enough. <laughs> I was like, did what they actually want? say that? Is yeah, that do, do you said? want like flannels and a beard? Like, what do you? What exactly? I'm from the Midwest, so apparently I wasn't their vision for the right host. Got it. But at the end of this this pitch conference, there's a thing called Real Screen, which is a reality TV pitching conference that happens every year. The last pitch of the day was for Food Network, and Food Network saw the real and they saw the treatments we put together, and they're like, "Whoa, this is interesting. Can we talk?" 
So long story short, get some meetings with Food Network. They green light a pilot episode. We shoot the pilot episode. It airs in January of 2013, and it was one of the highest rated pilots of the year. We had amazing ratings. Wow. So they greenlit uh, the first season. We shot the first season in Atlanta. The first season went live in January of 2014. And um, by the time all the episodes in the first season ran, we were like summertime of 2014. And, uh, and I got a call that, uh, that way they were not renewing for a second season because the ratings weren't high enough. Mm. So, um, that was tough, man. That was tough. Cause I had put to that point, you know, three years of my life into getting this concept off the ground. And, uh, yeah. it was a hard lesson. It was a hard lesson in the fact that, um, you know, when you, when you play on that level and you are working with the networks, even if it's your concept creatively, at the end of the day, they're still the gatekeepers, you know? And, yeah. um, and it was hard. It was, it was really heartbreaking for me, uh, to, to, you know, not have that season get renewed for, for a second one. Um, having dreamed that big dream for so many years. And I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful that it happened, but at the time, man, it was, it was a tough blow. It was a tough blow. Yeah. Cause I'm sure you envisioned it going a lot further. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. And I mean, at the time I had plans for, um, a whole line of food products and knives and like, you know, cause you, you, you know, there's, there's a certain formula as a whatever celebrity chef, you know what I mean? It's like you get a TV series and you, you get a book and you go on tour and then you have knives and you have aprons and you have, you have food products. And, um, I was working on all of those things. And when the TV show got, you know, didn't get picked up for renewal, it's kind of like all the people that I was working with managers and agents and everything were like, okay, we're done. And I was like, what do you mean you're done? So I actually ended up got, you know, getting dropped by my manager, dropped by my agent. Um, it was tough. That was a hard year, man. Wow. That was a hard year. It's like going through a breakup. You know, you envision your life with someone in the future and then it's just gone and it's like, now what? Yeah. And you know what? Um, I think on the other end of that lesson and many other lessons, um, one of the most sane approaches to life is to try and not have any expectations mm, yeah it's hard that we have no idea we have no idea what's going to happen we have no idea what's going to happen five minutes from now ten minutes from now we have no idea how how long we have on this planet so you know that 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 whole experience was just such an you know such an important reinforcement of like no assumptions no expectations man yeah it was a great show I was really excited when it aired because that was really the first, you know, like you said, primetime, just vegan exposure that you really saw. I went vegan in 2012. So to have that and to see that, it gave me a lot of hope that I wasn't oh. just in this like niche little, you know, movement or trend. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm, I'm really happy to hear that. And and my whole thing was like, look, let's, let's make this let's normalize veganism and let's not make it this fringe, you know, culty thing that everyone thinks it is still, yeah. you know, and, and the thing I'm bolstered by is, is just the evolution of this movement and the evolution now, as we are, you know, we're going to wake up tomorrow. It's going to be 2020, you know, honestly, <laughs> yeah. the way time is moving. Yeah. That's, that's insane, man. I, I don't like thinking about that because 2020 <laughs> just sounds like it's like, it was like a hundred years in the future. You know? like, <laughs> I feel the same way. It's so weird to say like 2020, like, whoa. Yeah. It's like, um, whoa, it's here, man. Where are the hoverboards at, by the way? I'm a little uh, you, pissed well, off that they're not here. Well, you know, uh, Lexus built one. 
You really? can actually Google like, Google. like an, an actual anti-gravity hoverboard. I'm talking like back to the future, like hoverboard. not anti-gravity, um, but you can, you can levitate. I don't want to get into it too much, but just Google after we're done. And for any of the listeners, just Google Lexus hoverboard. Um, they're not actually going to release it to my knowledge, uh, but they built one and it's pretty rad when you see it. Wow. I'm putting it's that on rad. my vision board. I, um, I will have that one. Lexus hoverboard. <laughs> Um, but I, I'm just bolstered, man, by the fact that like, you know, certainly since, since you've chosen to be vegan in 2012 and, you know, for me with the, you know, the mid to late nineties, like the amount of progress is, I think it's so important to pay attention to because it is really easy for me to get really caught up in, you know, the species extinction and global warming and the climate crisis. And, you know, I mean, every single day we're seeing new studies and new pictures and yeah. it, you know, it can feel absolutely heartbreaking. Um, and I am emboldened by the fact that I see and read and hear about more and more people every day, changing their lifestyle, changing yeah. their diet, changing their ethical choices, um, eating plant-based food, buying electric cars, installing solar panels, investing their money into ethical companies. You know, I I think for my own sanity, I have to focus on those things because if I don't, um, I'll look at pictures of starving polar bears wandering into Russian cities all day and just cry. Yeah. Yeah. And just cry. I've been there. And then nothing gets done. Yep. So I'm trying to balance man, just the heartbreak with the hopefulness Mm. every day. It feels like this balance of heartbreak and hopefulness for me every day. Yep. 100%. Man. I honestly, you know, I, I've been in that place before where it's so easy to just get overwhelmed and just feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulders. It's like, how can I possibly help the massive amount of suffering that is happening, not only to the animals and to people, but to the planet itself? And when you focus on that, of course, you're not going to want to get up and do anything because it's just absolutely crushing. But what I have found, you know, um, solace in is just realizing that it, it becomes my moral obligation then to wake up every day and be a part of the solution Mm -hmm. because otherwise I, I, I can either lay down and more or less die, you know, like I've been in that very dark, deep, depressed state where I'm just like, there's just no hope. I could either choose that route. Or the alternative is I give everything I absolutely have to this movement, to this cause towards making the world a better place. And so it's like, I have those two options. Obviously I don't want the, the previous one, you know, I want to, I want to help. So I I think focusing on that every day, it's just like, okay, the world's counting on me. Like, let's go. Like now I'm human. Like we all have bad days and there's going to be days where I don't think like that. But by adopting that mindset, I've had definitely way more better days than bad you know it's not like it used to be where i i spent a year of my life more or less depressed after really learning the truth to so many things happening in the world and it's been a journey over the years to get myself mentally to the point where i can wake up and and choose the the positive option but it's necessary and needs to be talked about because there are a lot of new vegans transitioning who are very angry and very upset and they're not sure how to deal with it as well and so it it kind of creates unnecessary backlash when they're talking to normal people trying to get them educated and trying to get them to say like, Hey, like you guys need to be like joining on this vegan lifestyle as well, because so many things are happening. So 
you know, I feel like we just need to get more people into that, that positive, like focusing on the solution instead of the problem. That's well said. No, and I'm glad you brought light to that because I think it can feel very isolating, especially if, if, you know, we're the only person we know that has our viewpoints or, or, you know, ethical philosophies, you know, we're in a family or we're in a town or a community that, you know, we feel like, you know, the odd one out or, you know, the weirdo. Um, and perhaps, you know, the, the, the beauty of social media and this globally connected civilization through the internet is that, you know, we don't have to feel so alone um, in the sense that, you know, if we're feeling this existential dread um, or this nihilism or depression, the worst thing we can do is be silent about it. The worst thing we can do is suffer in silence. The, the best thing we can do is to cultivate the courage to speak our truth. Um, you know, because I, I'm somebody who struggled with, you know, clinical depression for five years, you know, I was diagnosed with clinical depression five years ago. And the, the, the worst thing that I chose to do in the beginning of that was stay silent because I was ashamed, Yeah, you know, so whatever we're feeling new vegans or, or, you know, climate warriors, environmental activists, political activists, whatever our cause is in life that we're trying to stay positive and stand up for. Um, it's important to find our people and be honest when we're struggling about things because we're not alone in this and that's an illusion. Yeah. 100%. Did you deal with a lot of depression after, after the show ended? You know, you said that was one of the hardest years of your life. Talk about that. Yeah, that was hardcore. You know, it was this interesting, it was this interesting congruence, as I said, of, um, you know, the show getting canceled, my manager and agent, uh, you know, that those relationships dissolving, um, my partner at the time, my girlfriend, uh, we decided to break up after a few years of being together. Um, I was just at this, I, I was, I was suicidal, you know, I was, I was, I was suicidal. And, um, you know, for me, it took a combination of things. I, I went to go see an integrative medicine doctor and actually got all my levels tested and found out that, um, my neurotransmitters, you know, the, the chemical messengers in my brain were not, were not, balanced, you know, and I had to, uh, I had to adjust my nutrition and start taking a lot more supplements. And I started meditating daily and started going to see a psychotherapist and addressing, you know, this depression on a, on a mental, physical, and spiritual level. You know, I, I knew it had to be addressed on all levels and I had the option, you know, of taking a, a pharmaceutical and I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not damning pharmaceuticals. That's not my, my position. Yeah, but I wanted that to be my my last option. I wanted to be that you know, the last resort, and um, and you know it, it. I think I think my fundamental um, miscue was thinking that I could cure my depression. Right, I went in. I, I went in with the kind of that warrior mindset of like, okay, I'm going to meditate. I'm going to go to therapy. I'm going to take my supplements. I'm going to think positively. I'm going to get myself out of this, right? Get myself out like, like a rescue mission, you know, yeah. like go into the jungle and we're going to pull them out. <laughs> it's like a rescue mission, like, you know, prototypical masculine, like we'll bring him back home. I don't believe that depression is something you cure for me. In my experience, it is something I have just gained better tools and better methods to manage. Mm. It's a management of it for me. Yeah. Whereas there are still days there are still weeks, man. Like a couple weeks ago, like I had a whole week where I was just like, this is really hard. 
Um, those depressive states don't last as long as they used to. I feel like I have better tools to manage it than I did five years ago, but it's not like I've cured myself of depression. And I think that was the fundamental misnomer for me when I first tackled it was again, that uber masculine approach of like, we're going to fix this. We're going to cure it. (laughs) And to me, I don't, I don't think that I don't believe at this point that trauma or, mental emotional you know diseases uh work that way necessarily yeah i agree with that i think we just get better at managing them and coming up with healthier tools yeah um i don't know that that's that's just kind of my own journey man no no no. i i resonate with that i think that that's actually uh there's a lot of truth in that because i feel like um i say i'm i say i'm very susceptible to depression um, because I've I've felt myself starting to slip, you know, in at moments in time over the past couple of years, mm-hmm. and it's like you said it it wouldn't last as long. So I'd say at at my worst, I was very severely depressed for maybe four or five months. You know, to the mm-hmm. point where it took me maybe three four hours to get out of bed. There were days where I sat and stared at the wall for three hours, literally yeah. just staring. And you know, going through that and coming out of that. I didn't cure the the depression. I there were still times in my life where I felt myself going back to that place, but I was armed now with these new tools and I was able to you know wield them at a more strategic time knowing and recognizing these same patterns that came back I said. Oh, oh, this is how I felt you know before I got really depressed like okay, I have how did I get out of it last time? Like, let me grab this tool. Let me grab this tool. And it's not like it was easy. You know, it still took like several weeks, several months sometimes to get me out of that place. But each time that it would come creeping back, I'd get better and better and better. And so now I'm at a point where I recognize in myself that I still have these thoughts sometimes that if I let them grow, that they could take me back to that place. But now it's like, I'm so self-aware of when it comes I'm able to just like immediately just like get it out of my head and do what I got to do. So, man, I resonate with that on on a very deep level. I mean, I still have my bad days, but they're definitely not where they used to be. Yeah. You know, it's also such an interesting mirror. You know, if we we do a call back to the celebrity discussion we were having, um, the year 2014 that I was diagnosed with clinical depression, uh, that was the same year that Robin Williams took his own life. Oh, wow. committed suicide and he was one of my heroes yeah robin williams was one of my heroes hands down and i just think it's interesting the the increase the, the the dramatic spike we've seen in the past five to six years of celebrities killing themselves and i i i think for me in my own small way by no means to the level of a robin williams or or a chris cornell or you know um you know, any, any of these other people that have taken their own lives, Chester Bennington, um, uh, I think that there's a, a, a deep flaw in our, our cultural makeup, our standards of success in our culture that says, if you want to be happy and worthy, you need to be rich and famous. Yeah. But I think there's this fracture, right? Especially if someone like me who comes from, uh, estrangement with my father and having massive abandonment issues. You know, my thing 
to be honest, like there was a part of me like getting a TV series, being a world famous celebrity chef, like being the first vegan chef to like, whoa, he's like this, you know, whatever world famous, like the guy who broke through, like I'm going to be the vegan chef that broke through right to the mainstream. Part of that was motivated by like, I'm going to prove that I'm worthy. I'm going to prove to all of you that I'm worthy of love by being rich and successful and famous and using veganism as a vehicle to like penetrate the masses. Right. Yeah. But part of that was egotistical. It was, it, was, it was me trying to get the love and approval and attention and affection I didn't get from my father. And I feel like for a lot of extremely talented people who want fame and money, whether or not they realize it, they're motivated by, I want attention, I want approval, I want love that I didn't get from my parents or parent as a child. And then they get the fame and the money and all the drugs and all the women and all the every. every all the cars, everything you could possibly imagine, right? And you're still unhappy. I can understand why someone would take their own life in that situation. I can. Even yeah. in my small taste of that, small taste of that is like, yeah, TV show, book deal, beautiful girlfriend, man, and it all goes away. And then you're like, wow, I've been, chas I've been chasing so much external validation and I think in some ways it was a blessing that it happened for me the way it did because yeah. my motivation behind it was unsustainable. And I feel like that so, could backfire too, in the sense of, you know, you get, you get all these things, you get the women, you get the cars and then it's like, and then maybe you start to feel like you're only getting these things because of, of, of what you've done and not who you are. Right. Right. But, but see the, the conditioning we have, especially I'm going to say like at, as men in, in this society is what are the defining markers of masculinity? Make a ton of money, fancy cars, dope watches, big ass house, you know, um, you know, you know, the, the physical thing we seem like men's health magazine. What is it? It's like these ripped dudes with big, you know, big mansions, fancy cars, sexy women. Like certainly, you know, I think women are subjugated to a degree, you know, beyond what we are, but, but, I like to talk a lot about, you know, the societal pressures that, that we face in the masculine archetype. You know, I still struggle with that, man, of like, oh, you know, I'll finally be man enough when I make this much money. I'll finally be man enough when I have like all these dope cars. And, but I recognize that that's just society's definition of what it means to be successful yeah, or be a man or any of that crap. And none of it's real. But there are still moments when I still struggle with it, man. I'm like, no, that's not real, dude. That ain't real. That's not what it means to be a man. None of this has anything to do with masculinity. <laughs> yeah, 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 100%. Uh, listen, when I was in one of the peak shapes of my life, six-pack abs, muscles, all that good stuff, was also when I was most depressed. Like really? that, that did not change because it, it's, it's what's inside of your mind and your heart. It's not the external stuff. It's not what you have. It's... All that stuff is so surface level. And yeah. when it comes to actually having fulfillment in life, you know, what I've found to be the most fulfilling thing is to give service to something bigger than myself. Mm. And to me, that comes in the form of, you know, the vegan movement because it's, it serves so many things. And once I stop trying to search for what is my purpose you know, like something so individual. Once I started to say, hey, you've already been doing this thing that serves others. Like, why don't you focus on that and feel like that's what you're here to do is 
to make things better, to decrease the suffering like you talked about. And once I adopted that mindset to serve others and to be a part of something that is bigger than yourself, mm-hmm. to me, that has been the most fulfilling thing. Doing what I'm doing now, doing this podcast, trying to put out the, the YouTube videos that I do, trying to be active on Instagram. And I still work six days a week. I bust my ass, you know, like I'm... Um, if I get to watch 30 minutes of Netflix a day, I consider myself lucky, you know? (laughs) You know, I'm not making money doing this stuff, but I asked myself this question the other day and I said, look, yes, I would love to make money doing this. I would love for this to be my career, but say 10 years down the road, you've made millions of dollars doing this and it all gets taken away. Would you still do it? And the answer Mm. to that question was yes. Beautiful. That's such a beautiful indicator, what you just said. If, if money wasn't even a consideration, would you still be doing what you're doing? It's a yeah. great question. It's, a, it's, it's an important question. You know, um, Those activities that bring us that sense of connection and timelessness and that there's a, a larger contribution to the world, as you're saying, in, in a true spirit of service, um, there is a value far beyond money to those things. Mm-hmm. it's incalculable. You know, when, when, when you get a message from someone saying like you helped to lift them out of a dark place or you helped to inspire their family to eat better and be healthier, or you gave them a new perspective on how to view life. Like there's no money exchanged in those kind of connections, but it's just like, wow, something you said, did shared your art, something you created, not with the idea of making money, just doing it because it's from your heart. The ripple effect of that is incalculable, man. Yeah, it really is. It, 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 it can motivate you in, in times where, I mean, there's times with say for this podcast, for instance, you know, it's, mm-hmm. I'm still in the early stages of growing it. It's only been out for seven months. So, you know, I don't always get as, as much interaction as I'd like, but, but every now and again, like every, you know, week or so I'll, I'll get a message that says, Hey, your podcast really has inspired me. And I can't tell you how much motivation and fulfillment that brings me to just see that message. Like it trumps everything else. It it, it trumps, you know, getting a hundred likes on an Instagram post. It, it trumps all the followers. It trumps all that stuff goes out the window. It's in that moment that you realize that you're actually making a difference in somebody's life in a positive way that makes it all worth it. All the hours that you spent grinding, all the late nights that I've, I've spent up editing these podcasts so I could release it on the same day. Like, that makes it all worth it in that moment for just that one thing. And it's, it's just one person, mm-hmm. but it, yeah, and it hits you so deep. Yeah. The other thing is, is to think about all the people that you've affected that, that don't message you. Yeah. You know, it, it is, is we, we never really know the true impact of, I mean, the, the, the true scope of the impact of what we're putting out in the world. Right. Um, Huge but, ripple effect. Yeah. But, but for you to have that anchor, man, of just that spirit of service, um, you know, that's everything. Like that's the fuel that when you don't feel like doing it, when you'd rather, you know, just, just sit in bed with some vegan donuts and Netflix, <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with vegan donuts and Netflix. Right. I mean, that sounds really damn good. It does. Um, but we have to have that anchor, that, that soulful anchor to carry us through the moments where we just don't feel like doing the thing. Yep. Yep. Good stuff, man. I want to switch a, a little flip here. Um, switch a flip? Switch a 
Flip a switch. Flip a switch. There you go. <laughs> switch <or> flip. <laughs> I was like, what am I trying to say? Um, so going back to, to television, you recently made another TV appearance uh, on the Steve Harvey show. I, yeah, I watched yeah. the whole segment. Okay. You were... I, I don't watch the TV, the Steve Harvey show on a regular basis. I don't, I don't know if this is like a segment they do a lot, but it just seemed like there was a, uh, a woman on there who was kind of just like almost like a little mini, like bachelorette, like, you know, three candidates and, and you were one of them. She had to pick one of you guys. What was that? How, how did, first of all, how did you just get on there? And then what was that experience like? I, I honestly don't know exactly how they found me. They just, uh, I got an email in my inbox. This was a week before Valentine's Day of this year. And they said, hey, uh, we found you on the internet. We're casting for S- the Steve show, Steve Harvey show, for his dating game segment. Uh, are you are you single and interested? I was like, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, what, what the hell else am I doing on Valentine's Day this year? You're hanging out with my animals, uh, eating bonbons in the bathtub. You know, what, what am I doing? <laughs> Nothing. So, like, yeah, I'm game. So, they sent me a questionnaire and I answered the questionnaire and they said, cool, you're in. I was like, great. Cause I, I, it wasn't a bucket list item, but I always thought like, it'd be fun to do a dating game. It'd be fun. It'd be fun to be on the bachelor, like whatever, you know, right. I've never done anything like that. So we recorded the episode on Valentine's day and, uh, I had no idea who the other bachelors were. I had no idea who the bachelorette was. It was like, Hey, bring, you know, bring these wardrobe items. We're going to have hair and makeup. And it ended up being like a, a six hour experience. Wow. Uh, I went to, to NBC universal lot here in LA and you know, the call time was like two and we didn't end up shooting the segment to like six or seven. And it was surreal, man. It was, it was interesting. Um, they let us know that there was a series of questions that the Krista Allen, uh, was the bachelorette. She, she's an actress. She was on, um, some soap operas in the eighties and nineties, uh, okay. did some movies. She's also a stand-up comedian and, uh, and also happened to be vegan. I didn't know it at the time. Oh, wow. Also happened to be vegan. She didn't know I was vegan either. That's ah. a, a interesting twist to the story. The way that you didn't get to, I, I thought you mentioned that you said you were a plant-based chef on the, on the show, right? I did, but she didn't mention that she was vegan. Oh, uh, okay. So interestingly enough, uh, she gets into the questions and, uh, and people can check this out on my, on my Instagram TV if they want to watch the whole like seven minute segment. Um, but yeah, it was me. It was, it was David, a professional race car driver and this guy, um, Renee, who's a, who, who's a, uh, film producer. And, uh, you know, she gets into the questions. I sing to the audience. Uh, I, I knew the audience was on my side. Like when I got, and, got out and sang, uh, and the audience went crazy. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay, I've got them. <laughs> So when Steve went, the clip you didn't see that they didn't put uh, in the clip was the audience vote. Like right before Krista decided, Steve went to the audience and asked them to vote, right, with clapping and cheers for their favorite. Yeah. And they go through each person, right, pretty good. They get to me and the crowd goes bananas. Like my reaction was like, oh, my God. Like literally I can't believe this. (laughs) So, So Krista, you know, spoiler alert, ended up not choosing me. Everyone thought she was going to choose me. Like all the I comments, thought she was, too. I was like, I thought you were going to choose you. Um, but Dude, you know, the, the I mean, serenade alone, like when you were like, when you were like, I can serenade you, and you did, and you're like little like little frilly up and down. I was just like, whoa! I was like, that's it. He locked it in. <laughs> Dude, I just I was like, I need to come out the gate with something special because these guys are like so nervous, and I'm nervous too. But if I just like come right out the gate with a song, it's going to separate me instantly. Oh yeah, you know what I mean. Um, so 
I wasn't necessarily disappointed that she didn't choose me. You know, it wasn't like, oh, I didn't get a date. Um, I was just grateful for the experience. Like yeah. I got to be on a dating game on TV. That's super fun. Uh, but it was interesting uh, afterward when when um, when I was researching her, like, oh, she was vegan after all, and she rescues animals and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, to me, it was one of those things of, again, no expectations, man. I'm not going to go in thinking like this woman's going to choose me. I'm just right. going to show up and be myself, show her who I am, and I either get picked or I don't, you know? And, yeah. I, and I'm trying to have that approach with dating in general right now. You know, I, I, I would really like to have a life partner. Um, I'm going to be 42 in a week and I'm really ready to explore building something long-term with a person, you know, mm. bringing, bringing a woman in my life and, and building something together. Um, but with dating, man, I just, I can't go in with any expectations. Expectations yep. murder joy. They are the murderer of joy. <laughs> so yeah, I'm that. trying my best not to, you know, I'm trying not my best to be like, are you the one? Are you the one? Like, just enjoy her. Just be present and enjoy yep. her. Yep. Yep. That's a great lesson, man. Well, ladies who are listening to the show, if you're in LA, get in contact with Jason. You got a beautiful voice, man. You really do. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. Very much. Okay. So you have a one hour dinner with any celebrity alive or dead. Who's it going to be? Freddie Mercury. Nice. hundred percent. And that was way before like, I like, Oh, Bohemian Rhapsody. No, dude, I'm OG. I'm OG. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a bandwagon jumper who just started <laughs> listening to Queen in the past six months. I know. I know y'all out there. Like, oh, Queen's the best. Like, no. For like, Freddie Mercury is my spirit animal. <laughs> He's my spirit animal. Like, hundred percent, hundred percent, Freddie Mercury. Did you watch the movie? I did. Did you like it? I did. I, for the most part, I did. The thing I took umbrage with were the historical inaccuracies mm. and the the malleability of the timeline. Uh, being such a queen fan and Freddie Mercury fan, there were some things that were not true in the movie that I was like, eh, yeah. I don't like that. I get it. Hollywood. I understand what you're doing, but right. I don't like it. Um, I thought Rami Malek was incredible yeah. as Freddie. Yeah. Um, yeah he was, was really the, good. The historical in- inaccuracies were the part that bothered me though. I'd like the Harry Potter fans reading the books and going to see the movies, you know, for sure. I mean, it was the same thing with, um, I'm such a huge music fan, uh, the Motley Crue uh, uh, movie that came oh, yeah. out on yeah. Netflix. Same yeah. thing. I was like, huge, huge crew fan. And I'm like, that didn't actually happen that way. <laughs> that didn't actually happen. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, man, I just, it's got to be Freddie. Like he, he's hands down my favorite singer of all time. Yeah, I could see that for sure. That's awesome. There seems to be this like resurgence of kind of this classic rock. I think like, uh, me and my girlfriend are gonna go see that that um oh what's it called yesterday movie tomorrow about the guy who like oh, yeah. wakes up and he knows all the Beatles songs and I yeah, thought that one looked and, pretty funny. Yeah, and that's that's like my core era, man. Like if we go back to our inspiration and our art, you know, before I was a chef, you know, I was a musician and singing in bands and and you know that that's kind of my one of my original loves as as an artist and. uh you know, that's the stuff I was raised on, man, was, yeah. was Motown, soul music, classic rock. Like that's, that's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm literally, I already told everyone I'm 42. Like I grew up with, <laughs> I grew up with vinyl records, man. Like my parents were playing vinyl records when I was little. Yeah. So, um, yep. that's my, that's my stuff, man, is all that old, like 60s, 70s, early 80s stuff. That's, that's my, that's my youth, you know? Definitely. Definitely. I, I can appreciate it, man. I, I was in middle school listening to like ACDC and Zeppelin and the Ramones and, so, you know, Hell yeah. music Hell is yeah. timeless, man. Seriously. 
Yeah. Jason, what is next for you? So this is super exciting. And apropos being on your podcast, I am launching in the next couple weeks my my first podcast with my best friend and business partner, uh, Whitney Lauritsen, who's probably most well-known for her eco-vegan gal brand. We have our podcast called This Might Get Uncomfortable. Mm, I love it. And we've got 22 episodes in the can, and it's part of our, our new wellness brand called Wellevator. Um, people can check it out. We've got, we've got the podcast and a whole bunch of blogs that we're uploading to the, the website, and it's a uh, if I can give a, a shameless plug, it's uh, wellevator.com. Plug it. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com, wellevator.com. And it's really, um, you know, from a physical and mental and spiritual perspective, how do we optimize our mental wellness? You know, um, how do we get our minds right, our hearts right in this world? Going back to the throwback you and I talked about, Jake, of like, you know, we can address everything at, at, at the problem, you know, the, the, the problem level, or we can get to the root cause. Yep. and with the podcast, with the everything we're doing with Wellevator, it's really trying our best to get to that root cause of getting into the hearts and the minds of the limitations and the judgments and the things that are holding us back and, and connecting with true mental and emotional wellness. So that's the big thing coming up, man. Super stoked on that. Um, book number two is being worked on currently. Nice. Uh, called Good Mood Food, uh, which is all about eating and nutrition for um, mental health. And, uh, and writing new songs, man, I'm, I'm, uh, got two or three new songs in the can. I was just in the studio two days ago, so there's going to be new music coming out. So new podcast, new brand, new book, new music. I'm definitely not bored. No, I was going to say, <laughs> man, you got your hands full for sure. Yeah. Well, that all sounds amazing. I can't wait. I'm really excited to hear the music. Like I said, you have a, you have a great voice. I mean, I'll definitely check out the podcast as well. And I'll check out everything. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> I appreciate it, man. I, I, I do appreciate the support and, and you giving me a platform to be here on with you to just, you know, dive deep because, um, I feel so often, man, on, on some podcasts that I've done, it's just like, what's your favorite recipe? And I'm like, we could talk about truffled mac and cheese or like, <laughs> let's talk about the fundamental problems of humanity. So yeah, no, man, I um, mean, we didn't even, we barely even touched on food. I like to get to the deep stuff, you know? Yeah. And I appreciate you creating that container, man, because I, I, I want to have real raw, honest conversations about, you know, how we can support each other on this journey together. You know, going back to your point about being a spirit of service, of, of knowing that we're not alone in our struggle. We're not alone in, in the progress we're trying to make on this planet. And, um, and truly coming together in community is more important than ever, than ever. Yep. Yep. Why don't you plug everything else, man? Where can people reach you at? For sure. You can uh, check me out on my website, which is jasonrobel.com. It's J-A-S-O-N-W-R-O-B as in baby, E-L. <laughs> Uh, all my social handles at Jason Robel. Uh, and again, my new brand with Whitney called Wellevator, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Awesome. Any last words? Yes. I want to, I want to remind everyone, because I'm reminding myself when I say this, that everything is impermanent. You know, if you find yourself in a moment of, real darkness, real struggle, real pain, real suffering, remembering that it doesn't last forever is one of the most important things we need to do is reminding ourselves this moment will not last forever. You know, I think that we have this kind of selective memory sometimes that we forget everything we've survived 
We forget everything we've been through and grown through and everything that strengthened us, everything that has emboldened our souls that we've been through, every heartbreak, every disappointment, every financial setback, every bout of depression. But to remind ourselves that nothing lasts forever and reminding ourselves everything we've survived and everything we've gone through that's made us what we are today. And uh, I'm just reminding myself of that too (laughs) as I say it. (laughs) Yeah, very true words, man. Very true. Thank you, man, for being here. Honestly, it is it has been a true pleasure. I've absolutely thoroughly enjoyed talking to you here on the podcast. So again, I'm humbled to have you on the show. Thanks for taking time out of your extremely crazy life, all the things that you're doing to come on here and uh, you know share your story, share your insights with not only me but the audience as well. So thank you, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure being here, Jake. Thank you. Absolutely. Talk soon, man. Peace, guys. You did it. This is the end of this week's episode, so if you're still listening, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for still being here. If you enjoyed the content of this show, please don't forget to leave me a rating and review on iTunes and share with a family member or a friend somebody you think would also find value in this content. If you want to stay up to date with what I'm doing, head to my website, www.theveganmanlyman.com and sign up for my newsletter. My name is Jake Singer, and this is the Vegan Manly Man Podcast.